Jesus and his family leading up to uh, the, uh, the Christmas season. Uh, we're starting with chapter 3, verse 8 through 17, and if you look at verses 1 through 7, uh, we're not going to forget those. I'm going to go back and pick those up next week, uh, but there are some things in 8 through 17 that I thought were especially appropriate for the first Sunday of uh, a new year. At the first Sunday of a new year, it's a, a good time for us to stop and think once again who we are and to stop and remember what we're supposed to be about. We always need to know who we are, whose we are, and we always need to know what our mission is and what God would have us to be doing uh, in this world and make sure that we're moving in the direction that he has set for us. We've been studying First Peter under the theme of healthy Christian living in a toxic world. And many of you believe that in 2023, the world is going to be less toxic than in 2022. Yeah, me too. Uh, sadly, it probably won't. It may become more toxic. But also, in 2023, God is going to expect us to live as his people, to be the aliens and the exiles, as Peter <laughs> describes us in 1 Peter living in a world that is not truly uh, our home. And that, that means that the question of how to live a healthy Christian faith as we live out our time in this toxic world is as important as ever. Perhaps it grows more important day by day. So as followers of Jesus, here for a short time in a world that's not really our home, how do we respond to the world around us? How do we respond to this toxic environment in which we live. And I'm talking about toxic spiritually. I'm talking about toxic where our faith is concerned and toxic as far as the world's attitude toward us. How do we respond to it? Let me outline for you, first of all, three approaches that have frequently been taken and sometimes are still taken in responding to a toxic world. One of those approaches is isolation. Let's just get away from the world. Let's just withdraw from the world. Let's just pull back from it. Now, there's a sense in which we are to be in the world, but not of the world, all right? There is a sense in which we have to keep some measure of distance uh, from a world that is uh, filled with sin and, and with unbelief. But I'm talking about just trying to withdraw from the world completely, trying to have nothing to do with the world or as little to do with the world as we possibly can. That's the isolation that I'm talking about. In the early centuries of the church, there were people who took that to an extreme, and, and it resulted in what was called the monastic movement. People retreated to monasteries. Some of them went way out into the desert and way up on mountains and, and you know, just off in uh, deep forests and any place they could get to try to get away from the world, and they just lived with other people who were of a like mind and just tried to shut the world out. Uh, and the idea was to get away from the world and its miseries and its unhappiness and its uh, sin and its temptations. But in the process, it also got away from the world, from the world's people. And so retreat from the world and its struggles is to retreat from the world's people. So that's isolation. A second way people have responded is through assimilation. Assimilation. When when we assimilate to our environment, to our culture, we just seek to blend in. We try to be somewhat different because we follow Jesus, but not too different. 
We try to be careful that we don't cause any offense by anything that we believe or anything that we say. And if we think something's going to, that we just sort of keep that to ourselves. And, and we just try to blend in as much as we possibly can with the culture around us so as not to, op uh, to arouse any opposition. Now, assimilation is what leads churches, which have historically taken a biblical view of morality and of ethics, to gradually erode those walls and to gradually begin to uh, accept what the world accepts. That's why you've got so many churches today who historically were opposed to things like same-sex marriage and abortion and things like that. Uh, they knew exactly who they were and what they believed about that, but now they've assimilated to it. Now it's okay. All that is is embracing the world. That is an assimilation to the world. It is an about face in the wrong direction, and its aim is to not be in conflict with the prevailing culture, but it results in the abandonment of biblical truth. A third way people have responded to a toxic world uh, is through retaliation. This is where we just take up the, uh, the mantle of battle with the world. Uh, we realize there's always going to be conflict. We realize that there are always going to be differences, and so let's just draw the lines and go at it. Uh, and it's good that we know the difference between followers of Jesus and, and people who are not, and the difference between the church and the world. That's a distinction that needs to be maintained. But in retaliation, we begin to react to the world as the world reacts to us. And you notice that Peter said in the, in the reading this morning, they were not to do that. We're not to trade insult for insult. We're not to throw barbs at people who don't believe what we believe. Well, we may engage in discussion with them. We may engage in, in uh, controversy with them. We may engage in debate with them, but never do we want to engage in hostility with them. You see, the problem is if people can't see Jesus in us, if our responses to the world are so harsh that they can't see Jesus in us, we've lost already. And so retaliation is not the way to go either. We've been experiencing for the past few decades what have been called the culture wars, where the law, uh, lines have been drawn up so, so sharply. And, and the goal is to simply one-up our opponents and, and to uh, make a point and to you know, throw jabs and barbs. And that is retaliation, and that is one way to respond to a toxic world, but it's not a good way. Here's the problem. Scripture will not allow any of those three responses. We look at Scripture and ask, how should we respond to a toxic world as believers in Christ? None of those are permissible. And let me point out to you why they're not. First of all, isolation. How can we fulfill the Great Commission, which is our marching order, how can we fulfill the great commission of going into all the world and making disciples if we isolate ourselves? We can't possibly do that. We're supposed to be going into the world and telling the world about its Savior, not withdrawing from the world. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, always be ready to give a, make a defense to anyone who would ask you. Well, that implies interaction, doesn't it? That implies that we are uh, dialoguing with people. That implies that we are uh, associating with people to the extent that they can see something about our faith or what we believe, and they might even ask us about it. 
Why do you believe that? Why do you live that way? Why do you think what you think? That isn't going to happen if we're in isolation from people. The intent of those who ask us why we believe and what we believe, it may be hostile or it may not be. It may just be curiosity. It may be a longing to know. But regardless, Jesus said that we're to be lights in this world of darkness and we're to be salt in a world of unbelief and of immorality. And the thing about light and about salt is they have to penetrate. The light has to penetrate the darkness. The salt has to penetrate the food or whatever it is we're trying to affect with the salt. So we cannot be isolationists. We cannot be withholding ourselves from the world. In a similar way, we are not allowed to assimilate. That's out of the question based on chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Peter asked this question, who is there to harm you if you try to do what's right? You know, I grew up thinking and, and I think being told that if you always do the right thing, everybody's going to recognize that and treat you right. Uh, somewhere along the line, I figured out that wasn't quite true. Not always. Normally. And that's what Peter is saying. Normally, if you're trying to do the right thing, people are going to recognize that and they're going to acknowledge that and they're not going to want to harm you. But they, but they may, and Peter recognizes that too. And he says, but even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Even if you do, even if insisting on doing the right thing, even if insisting on saying the right thing, even if refusing to do the wrong thing, brings you suffering. He says, you will be blessed by God. But he does not say you should assimilate to the culture around you so that you can escape any kind of conflict or any kind of hostility. We're not allowed to do that. We've got to always do what right, what's right. Assimilation is really nothing other than surrender. If we're not light and we're not salt, then we're not different. And if we're not different, we can't be light and we can't be salt. What about the third one? What about retaliation? Well, that just makes matters worse, doesn't it? Exchanging barb for barb and insult for insult is not the way of Christ. Remember what Peter has already said in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. He said, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he goes ahead to describe how Jesus reacted to those who crucified him. He said there was no guile, there was no deceit. He didn't try to lie his way out of anything. And he said when he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. The example of Jesus tells us that we cannot live by the law of retaliation. If our responses to those who oppose us are so harsh that they don't see Jesus, we've already lost the war. The goal is to win the world to Christ, not to put it in its place. So there are three ways it won't work. There are three ways that scripture will not allow. There are three ways that do not accomplish the mission for which Jesus sent us into the world. But there is a fourth way and this fourth way is an alternative response, and it's the only way, I think, that is approved by Peter and by the rest of the writers of the New Testament. And that's what's sometimes described as redemptive engagement. 
redemptive engagement. Now, those are not biblical terms, but it's biblical ideas. Redemptive uh, because our goal is to lead people to Christ where they can be redeemed from their sins. Engagement because it means we are deliberately, deliberately making contact with the world. We're deliberately going to the world. Engagement is a military term in our language, isn't it? Uh, we engage the enemy, right? In this sense, we go out and we look for an opportunity, but not to fight, an opportunity not to kill, an opportunity not to destroy, an opportunity not to uh, be harsh with those, but an opportunity to lead people to redemption, redemptive engagement. That's what we have been called to, is to try to lead the world to Christ through this pattern of redemptive engagement. It's been a number of years ago now, but I was asked to be on a panel discussion with an Orthodox rabbi and, and a Muslim imam. I'd never done anything like that before, never been in a situation like that before, but it was a, uh, a civic organization and they, they wanted representatives of the three Abrahamic faiths, as they were called to come together and, and to discuss what we each believed and what, what we believed that was alike and what we believed that was different. And I noticed right away that ironically, the Orthodox rabbi and the imam were sort of friendly to each other and not to me. And I thought, well, that's okay. You know, I'm not worried about that. So we're, we're sitting up there, you know, up on a stage and got an audience of a couple of hundred people out there. And uh, there were pre-prepared questions that were asked to each one of us and we each responded in turn and so it was the uh the imam and then the rabbi and then me in that order so we always answered in that order the imam the rabbi and then me the last question that they asked was does your religion try to convert other people does your religion try to convert other people the imam with sort of a smile on his face said oh no no we don't try to convert other people which, by the way, isn't true, but that's what he said. And, and I think he felt kind of good about saying it. You know, no, no, we leave everybody alone. Got to the rabbi, same thing. No, no, you're, if you're not born Jewish, you're not Jewish, which also is not true. You can't convert to Judaism. Uh, but no, 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 we, we don't do that. And then they got to me, and they said, does your religion try to convert other people? And I said, absolutely. And I said, the reason why we do is because we believe a message that's called gospel, which means good news. And good news is for sharing with other people. And if we didn't have a good news message, we probably wouldn't try to convert other people either. And they just kind of sat there and looked like, okay. But we do have a good news message. We do want to lead other people to Christ. We do want this redemptive engagement. We do want those opportunities to tell people about our Savior. We want to tell them the gospel. Redemptive engagement is simply another term for telling the gospel. So how do we go about doing that? How do you and how do I in the year 2023... As we go about every day this year, how do we go about practicing redemptive engagement? We are the aliens and the exiles. We're the, we're the outsiders. The world is toxic to our faith, doesn't like what we believe, doesn't like what we say, doesn't like our Savior. So how do we go about practicing redemptive engagement? Peter tells us, beginning in verse 14. First of all, he says in verse 14, So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
I'm glad he started off that way. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In other words, don't be intimidated into silence. Have you noticed over the last couple of decades that that's been what has happened is that the world has made it completely inappropriate for anybody to talk about what they believe unless you don't believe? And if you don't believe, or, you know, if you believe in the moon goddess or something like that, it's okay to talk about that. But it's not okay if you believe in God who created the heavens and the earth. It's not okay if you believe in Jesus who died on the cross for us and was raised from the dead. The world has tried to intimidate us into silence, and I'm afraid it's worked. In most instances, we have learned not to speak up when we should speak up. Do not be afraid of them, he says, nor be troubled. Just speak the truth. Paul said, speak the truth in love, didn't he? Always speak the truth in love, and the truth will take care of itself. Do you remember what Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says about the word of God? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't say the speaker of the word of God. Is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It says the word itself is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So when the word of God is spoken, you don't know what it might do. You don't know what might happen. You may just plant a small seed just saying a sentence or two, but if it's the truth, if it's the word of God, it may change somebody's life because it may implant itself deep within their hearts and they may begin to think about it and they may begin to want to know more. Have no fear of them, he says, nor be troubled. So just tell the truth and tell the truth in love and the truth will take care of itself. Just be sure it's the truth that you're telling. Second thing, in verse 15, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What's he talking about there? I think what he means there is we need to remember who is the Lord. We need to remember who is in control. We need to remember who is in charge. It's not me. It's not you. It's not the world. It's him. Christ is in control, and we need to be confident of that, and we need to remember that it is his glory that we seek. We are honoring him not ourselves. We're not trying to promote ourselves. We're promoting him. And as we do that, and we seek not our own glory, but his, and so we reverence him in our heart. And when you reverence him in your heart, then you know how to speak the truth in love. So you're automatically beginning to get the attitude right. Because it is him that you're seeking to glorify and not yourself. Then third, he says in verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now notice, always be prepared to make a defense. That's the English Standard Version. Some other translations say to give an answer. The Greek word is apologia, and apologia is where we get our English word apologize and the term apologetics. Apologetics is a reasoned explanation of what we believe and that's what Paul is talking about. Always be prepared to give a reasoned explanation of the hope that you have within you. 
Now, I don't think by that he means some kind of academic discussion. I don't think he means something that is, is so complicated or so high level that an ordinary person can't grasp it. Just something simple, but something, that, something that's reasonable, something that makes sense, something that points to the truth of who Jesus is and about what he has done for us. And notice he says, always be prepared to give that response to anyone who asks you. The point is to seize the moment to gain a hearing for the gospel. When that opportunity comes, be ready. I don't know about you, but I can look back in my own life and see times when I had golden opportunities laid right in front of me, and I wasn't ready. And I, re I regret that so much. I regret that, that, that I wasn't ready to say what I should have said at that moment when somebody asked me. Or when that moment when somebody made a comment, they just kind of opened the door, you know, that kind of showed they're ready to talk about this. And I wasn't ready, and I didn't know what to say. Always be ready. Seize that moment as an opportunity for the gospel. Go back and read through the book of Acts, and notice how Peter and Paul, when they were brought before uh, their opponents, when they were accused of things and they were being threatened and all sorts of things, what did they do? In every instance, they turned that into an opportunity for the gospel. When people said, you're not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, they said, well, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me tell you about Jesus. And they would tell them who Jesus is. They would use that opportunity. When somebody would say, you know, we don't like what you're saying about Jesus. Well, then let me explain it to you a little more clearly. And they would tell it again, the story of the cross and the story of the resurrection. That's what we're supposed to do. Always be ready. And notice that Peter is talking to all of us. Every one of us needs to be ready to do what he says here. I want to challenge you to do something here at the beginning of the year if you've never done this before. Some of you have heard me say this before, and I hope you've done it. If you haven't, I hope you'll do it now. I'd like for you to spend some time thinking that if you have two minutes to tell somebody what you believe, what would you say? Two minutes, no more. You say, well, why limit it to two minutes? Because sometimes you don't get very long. Sometimes you don't get that much of an opportunity. But if you use those two minutes or one minute or whatever you have, but if you can tell somebody within two minutes the heart, the core of why you're a Christian, what you believe, what's most precious to you about your faith, you do not know the door that might be opened for them to receive the gospel as well. It doesn't have to be that hard, you know. It could be something as simple as this. Somebody says, well, you know, I don't know much about Christianity. I haven't read much about the Bible. What, what is the main thing about it? What, what do you believe about it? Just try saying this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I believe he died for yours too. That's truth. That's gospel. Can you imagine how it would affect somebody if they've asked, well, what do you believe? And you, you get right to the point, right to the heart of it. You're not being accusatory. You're not... You're not boasting, you're just talking about him. I believe he died for my sins. And I believe he died for yours as well. Or say something like this. What do I believe? I believe that I'm a sinner who's saved by the grace of God because of what Jesus did in dying for me on the cross. Or what do I believe? 
Why am I a Christian? Because I now have the hopeful expectation of living forever in the presence of God. Try saying something like that. Doesn't it, that didn't take a minute, did it? Did anybody time me? I don't think any of those even take a minute. You can do that in just a matter of seconds. But spend some time thinking how you would answer a question that someone would ask you if they just turn to you suddenly and say, why are you a Christian or what do you believe? What would you say? Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. And then notice also verse 15, the next thing he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. When your opportunity comes, speak up, but do it with the right attitude because that's what often makes the difference in whether or not somebody will listen to you is the attitude you portray. It's not an attitude of smugness. It's not an attitude of arrogance. It's not an attitude of saying, <clears throat> I've got something you don't have. <clears throat> it's, not <an> <clears throat> Excuse me. it's not an attitude of saying, <clears throat> I figured out, <clears throat> pardon me, I figured out something on my own. I don't know why you haven't figured it out. It's as plain as the nose on your face. But to say it with gentleness and with respect, this is what I believe. And this is why it's so important to me. And then look at verses 16 and 17. Don't be shocked if speaking up leads to opposition and suffering. Don't be shocked. Because after saying that, in verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. He starts talking about if you suffer for doing right. Because sometimes you will suffer for doing that. Sometimes you will suffer for speaking up. Sometimes people will react in hostility, no matter how gently or respectfully you respond. This toxic world may lash out at you. But you do it with a good conscience, he says, so that when you are reviled by other people, they'll be put to shame when they see your good behavior. You just be steady. You just keep being the same person. You don't, you don't let their anger, you don't let their resentment, you don't let their hostility turn you into a combatant. You just let them see the calmness and the peace in your own heart. Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil. But you may suffer for doing good. We've got to recognize that. You may suffer for it. Don't be shocked about it. Just make sure that if you suffer or when you suffer, it's for the right reason. Make sure you're not suffering because you've been a jerk. Make sure that if you have suffering, it's because people are just saying no to the gospel. Redemptive engagement. That's what God has called us to in this toxic world. Knowing that this world is not our home, that it's our home only for a little while. And being certain that we have a better home in heaven. What do we do while we're here? We engage God's world redemptively. We tell others about what he's done for us. We just tell them, but we don't hide, we don't assimilate, we just tell the truth in love. I want you to imagine for a moment if every member of the Glen Allen Church did what Peter says in the year 2023. If we're always prepared to give an answer to the hope that we have within us, and we give that answer every opportunity we get, what will this church be like at the end of the year? 
How many more people will be on their way to heaven? How many more people will have escaped the ravages of sin in their lives and be living with the hope of eternity with God simply because we reverence Christ as Lord in our hearts and we speak the truth in love when given the opportunity? What a great time it would be for you to start that journey of following Jesus. First Sunday of a new year, first day of a new year. Why don't you make that decision today to come and confess Christ and be baptized into him? Or maybe you need to come back to him. Maybe you've been away and you need to come back. Whatever your need is, we stand ready to help you with it. You can come and tell us while we stand and sing.